0: This is a disclaimer about violence. Despite these being very widely known as children's stories, the originals can be fairly gruesome. Check out MythPodcast.com for more information. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, I'll be telling the bizarre and violent original stories of Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, and Bluebeard. You'll see that if Grandma is wolf-shaped, and she tells you to just go ahead and get naked, burn your clothes, and jump into bed with her, well, you might want to think about that for a second. And also... I know it sounds tempting, but do not accept half-eaten produce from witches, ever. Just don't do it. The creature this week is from West Africa, and just wants to hang out with you, and maybe drain your blood with his feet. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 48, Killer Queen. Is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. It was sort of a happy accident that this episode, with Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, and Bluebeard, ended up being the week before Election Day here in the U.S. But these are stories that I get requests for all the time. They're fairy tales, so of course, there aren't any relevant time periods. God or goddesses don't play major roles, and there are talking animals and magic. In sticking to the red, white, and blue theme, we'll start with Little Red Riding Hood. There are many, many different versions of the Little Red Riding Hood story. And they all share the same broad strokes. The young girl's going to grandma's. She meets a strange animal, usually a wolf, in the forest, and then is a confrontation with the stranger, later at grandma's. The details, though, are drastically and darkly different. I'm going to be hitting all the main Red Riding Hood stories, from the earliest up to the Grimm story, which is the one we know best. One of the earliest stories that I could find was from Italy from the 1400s, and it's called Little Red Hat. I wonder if you can guess what her defining characteristic is. Grandma and Little Red Hat were walking through the fields, and Grandma stood up and said, "'Well, I'm going home. You don't come home yet, though,' Have some fun here in the fields by yourself. Grandma needs some grandma time. Come home later, and when you do, bring some soup. Red Hat was collecting flowers and agreed. An hour or so later, Red Hat was getting bored, and she picked her grandma up some soup, though I have no idea where. I mean, it's not like there are food trucks in 15th century Italy, and she was in a field. Where's she going to get soup to go? And even if she did get soup, it's not like there are to-go containers. I know I'm spending way too long on the soup thing, but if the peasants who told the story hadn't died 500 years ago, I'd like to have a word with them on their inconsistencies. Anyway, Red Hat set out to Grandma's, and as, thankfully, does not happen very much anymore, an ogre walked up alongside her on the road. He asked her where she was going. She said she was going to her grandma's to bring her some soup. The ogre asked, where is your grandma's house? and she said it was the little house on the edge of the dark forest, breaking the fourth rule of the myths and legends podcast. Don't give your home address to ogres. The ogre said, oh, good. I'll come along too. I'd really rather you didn't. Little Red Hat didn't say, but should have. The ogre just continued, and asked if she was going to cross the river on the smooth stones, or through the field full of thorns. She told him that, well, seeing as one is a field of thorns, I'll be taking the stones. The ogre said, oh, okay. Did I say I would come along? I misspoke. Instead, I'm going to leave you right now forever. Goodbye. And he ran off in the direction of the thorny field. The thorns were bad, but he just thought of that sweet, delicious grandma on the other side, and it helped the ogre get through. He was scraped and bleeding, but when he finally made it to the other side, he took off in a sprint toward grandma's house. But as it turns out, he didn't need to go through the field or sprint because Red Hat got distracted by flowers and butterflies. A Half an hour later, with the soup pretty cold and getting one of those soup skins on top, she decided to finally head off for Grandma's. Grandma lived at the edge of the forest, far from town. A beautiful place if there was any manner of functioning government. Not so great if you have ogres going from door to door. This was the latter. Grandma answered the door, and Grandma was no more. Now, here's where we hit the first diversion from the Grimm story. Grandma is not coming back. The ogre cut open Grandma and tore out her intestines, which he used as a latch string. Basically, it was a string that ran through the hole in the door so that people could lift the latch from the outside if they needed to get in. He also tore her head apart and took her cheeks off and pulled her teeth out, storing them in the cupboards. He also had time to drain the blood from the body and then just drop Grandma out the back door. Red Hat came skipping up to Grandma's house, basket full of flowers and soup ice cold, to see Grandma's house shuddered. She yelled inside, asking if everything was okay. She heard a gruff, un like voice saying, yeah, just pull the latch string to open the door. Red Hat looked at the latch string. It did not look right. She yelled back that there's something wrong with the string. It's bloated and wet and kind of bloody. That's because it's your Grandma's intestines, the wolf said. What? Red Hat said, not quite hearing him, ''Oh nothing, just pull the string and come in.'' Red Hat shrugged, pulled the intestines, and went inside. It was dark inside, and her grandma was in bed on the other side of the room, apparently with a lot of blankets because grandma looked huge. Red Hat sat the soup down and said she was hungry. Did grandma have any food or anything? The ogre, not really knowing if grandma actually had food, had the perfect solution, "'Uh, yeah,' he said, pointing to the cupboard. "'Up there, there's a bag of uncooked rice.' Red Hat's face lit up. "'A handful of uncooked rice? "'That's a treat for any child.' She eagerly found the bag and was excited to enjoy those hard, flavorless pellets when she bit down on something way bigger and way harder than an uncooked grain of rice. She turned it around in her mouth. It did not feel like rice at all. It was big and sharp and hard.' She said as much to Grandma Ogre, who said, again, that's because it's your grandma's teeth. Of course, Red Hat didn't hear him over really trying to eat that tooth. And so this very obvious warning went unheeded. Red Hat ended up eating the whole bag of teeth, trusting this large, shrouded, and husky voiced figure that she believed to be her grandmother on the other side of the room. This continued with Red Hat eating her grandmother's cheeks thinking that they were chopped meat, and drinking a bottle of her blood, thinking it was wine. She had her doubts the whole time, but kept up with it, because she trusted her grandma. After a long day of playing in the field, and an evening of unintentionally cannibalizing grandma, Red Hat said that she was tired. If you're wondering, yeah, they completely forget about the soup sitting on the table, that's just getting colder. The story has so many super related plot holes. The ogre responded that Red Hat should take off her clothes, and get in bed with grandma. Now, I know how that sounds, and I'm honestly unsure how we should take it. Some later versions of other stories just ask Red to take off her traveling clothes, and presumably she's not naked. It doesn't matter, though, because of what comes next. In bed, she rubbed up against Grandma, and noticed that Grandma was very hairy. She then launched into a somewhat familiar interchange. That comes with age, said the ogre. Grandma, you have such long legs. That comes from walking." Grandma, you have such long hands, that comes from working. Grandma, you have such long ears, that comes from listening. Also, the ogre really doesn't understand cause and effect, but whatever. And then Red finally said, Grandma, you have such a big mouth. Grandma Ogre said, That comes from eating children. And the ogre ate Red Hat. And yeah, Red Hat was eaten. In one bite. And she died. Unknown and alone on the edge of the dark forest. With no one to tell her story hear her screams, or mourn her. The end. So, this is a story that parents might tell their children, to keep them from talking to strangers. As we've talked about in the past, parents in the Middle Ages did not mess around at all. As we know, there's a real danger with talking to strangers on the road, and I guess parents needed a cautionary tale, where the girl lost her grandma, ate parts of her unwittingly, and then was eaten herself by an ogre. Regardless, that's how the earliest version of Little Red Riding Hood ends. The next version I'm going to talk about, is that of Charles Perrault. He's a French author, who lived in the late 17th century, and he's credited with actually creating the fairy tale genre. It wasn't until he was 67, and he lost his high-ranking government post, and decided to dedicate himself to his children. Two years later, he published a book of stories, some folklore, some literary fairy tales, and that's what he's known for today. It's never too late to start again. His track's a lot closer to the story as we know it today, there's a big bad wolf who meets Little Red Riding Hood. She's called that in this one, and she, once again, gives her grandma's address to a menacing stranger. She, again, stopped to pick flowers, gather nuts, and run after butterflies. When she got to the house, she, too, heard a large, gruff voice in the place of her sweet old grandmother. Again, the wolf asked Red Riding Hood to take her clothes off and get into bed. Don't worry about the cake that she brought. And thankfully, there was no cannibalizing grandma on this one. Little Red Riding Hood, in bed, and despite the darkness of the room, could see parts of the wolf, and she gave the familiar refrain of, what big arms you have, but it makes a little more sense this time. The wolf said, better to hug you with, my dear. What big ears you have, better to hear you with, my dear, and so on. You don't need me to tell you what happens next. Little Red Riding Hood was eaten, and again, she's really dead this time. At this point, I can picture Charles Perrault pausing, really concerned that young women aren't going to get the point of the story, and so he keeps writing, spelling out his meaning, in a paragraph after the story, clearly labeled moral. By the way, if you need a paragraph explaining the story after the story, this just means you've done a really good job conveying the meaning. Charles Peralt said that beautiful young women should watch out for wolves on the road, because if you invite wolves back to your home and get in bed with them, it could end badly for you. No matter how quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, and sweet the wolf seems, sometimes it is the seemingly gentle, nice-guy wolves who are the most dangerous of all. Hint, hint, men can be terrible. I've always seen Little Red Riding Hood as a cautionary tale of both not trusting strangers and the importance of teaching canine anatomy at a young age, but I've never thought of it in terms of warning a child about a sexual predator, because while we might see him as a big bad wolf, he was polite courteous, and nice on the road when he met Red. The last one I'll talk about is the Grimm story. We've talked about Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, but they traveled to what's now known as Germany in the 1800s, and collected folk tales from the people. They compiled the tales into a few volumes, and one of which was Little Red Cap. And though it sounds like the Italian version, it draws heavily from the Perrault version. Little Red Cap was walking through the forest, with a cake and a bottle of wine for her sick grandma. Red's mother told her to be careful, not to leave the path, and to get to grandma's quickly. She didn't say anything about not speaking to large talking wolves, and Red didn't know the wolf was a wicked animal, so she, again, gave him grandma's address, and she, again, chased butterflies, and took the long way. The wolf, again, ate grandma whole, put on her clothes, and sat in bed. Again, he ate red, too. Then, the wolf fell asleep, and started snoring. Loudly, a woodcutter was walking by, He was a neighbor, and was confused by why an old lady such as Grandma would be snoring so loudly. He saw the wolf, and narrowed his eyes. Apparently there's some backstory here, because the woodcutter knew the wolf, and he had been hunting him for years. He knew, immediately, that Grandma was still alive in there, without air, and in the presence of powerful stomach acid. The woodcutter couldn't just shoot the thing. What if he missed? He picked up some scissors. Fifteen bloody minutes later, and Grandma and Red emerged from the wolf's gaping wound. Instead of dying from having the woodcutter slice through his abdomen with no small degree of abandon, the wolf awoke just an hour later to the three piling stones in his stomach. He shrieked, jumped to his feet, and took off. The stones came crashing down on him and crushed him, killing him just steps from the door. I cannot begin to explain the death, so I'm not even gonna try. After that, Grandma popped open the wine and Red, Grandma, and the woodcutter had wine and cake together. The end. There's one more version, a French version, called The Grandmother, and it hits all the same beats as the others, but the wolf is a werewolf in this one, and Red actually figured it out sometime after she ate parts of her grandma, but before she got into bed. The werewolf, again, asked her to take off all of her clothes, but this time he asked her to burn them, and she did. She got into bed, and remarked on all of his attributes until she got to what a big mouth you have, and he said better to eat you with, and she said, I have to go to the bathroom. The wolf looked at her, now, like right now, we were just getting to the end of it. You know what, just go in the bed, Red said, right, right here in the bed, no, wow, no, that's, ew. The wolf said, okay, okay, but tie a rope around your wrist, so I can pull you back inside if you get too far away, as is totally normal in this situation. When red, still naked, remember all of her clothes were burned, made it outside, she wrapped the rope around a plum tree and bolted. The wolf heard the naked girl bolting through the forest. He chased after her, but she made it home and slammed her door in his face. And he just wandered off after that. And, sadly, grandma was still dead. So what have we learned from this? I learned that I could not hack it as a child in the middle ages. Seriously, the moral of one story was, don't talk to strangers or you'll end up eating your own grandma. Also, we learned that the Middle Ages and early modern period had really great places where you could get soup to go, but those have apparently been lost to the ages. After the break, we'll see that if someone tries to kill you three times, you should maybe stop talking to that person. Just a thought. That will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Bombas Socks. So, I was doing some research, and socks in the Middle Ages were actually apparently a symbol of wealth. Also, for some reason, the oldest existing pair of socks is bright red, and they look like they belong on Ninja Turtle feet. I put a link of the picture in the show notes. Bombas socks are, unsurprisingly, much, much nicer than bright red, oddly shaped Ninja Turtle socks. They are the most comfortable socks I have ever worn, and, also unsurprisingly, a lot of thought goes into them. They are tested at 133 different tension levels, so they stay up, but they're not too tight. And they are super soft, durable, comfortable, not too hot, not too cold. They are just great. Bombas has donated more than a million pairs of socks to homeless shelters in the U.S. Bombas donates a pair of socks to those in need for every pair purchased. Because socks are the number one requested item in shelters across the United States, go to bombas.com, that's B-O-M-B-A-S and you'll get 20% off and free shipping on your first order of four or more pairs Bombas has a 100% satisfaction guarantee you'll love them or your money back no questions asked once again for some really awesome socks go to Bombas.com this week's episode is brought to you by Movement Watches so I don't know if you've looked for watches in department stores but I have you'll see one that looks really cool and then you see the price it's like $500 the two broke college kids that started Movement Watches felt the same way in my opinion, the watches look just like the ones that cost four or five hundred dollars, but they start at just ninety-five dollars. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. The one I got has genuine leather, a classic design with a steel body. It has this kind of cool minimalist style to it, and I guess a lot of people feel that way, because Movement sold half a million watches in over 160 countries, and you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns, by going to mvmtwatches.com myths. This watch has a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. Now is the time to step up your watch game. So go to mvmtwatches.com myths. Once again, that's mvmtwatches.com slash myths. Join the movement. All right, now back to the show. The next story today is Snow White. We're gonna go with the Grimm version. It's a story where the modern versions track pretty well with the version collected by the Grimm brothers. A mother, who was a queen, wished for a daughter with skin as white as the snow, lips as red as blood, and hair as black as her throne. She wished and wished, and finally the queen became pregnant. When she had a little girl, she named her Snow White. She had a magic mirror because, don't we all? She stood in front of it, and you know what she said. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who in this land is the fairest of all? The mirror would tell her the truth, that she was the fairest, until little Snow White turned seven years old, and the mirror stated that Snow White is a thousand times fairer than her mother. A couple things, seven seems young for a child to be in competition with her mother for the most beautiful woman in the world. Setting that aside, yeah, it's her mom. In many retellings, including the 1857 version of these stories, there's an evil stepmother thing, with a biological mother dying early on but in the original Grim story from 1812, it's her mother, and I'm not spoiling anything when I say the Queen, Snow White's mother, decrees that because Amir has said her seven-year-old is more beautiful than her, the child must die, and the Queen must eat her daughter's lungs and liver. I don't even know what to say for this, I cannot even comprehend the Queen's level of deranged narcissism. The Queen, at the very least, couldn't bring herself to murder Snow White, so she hired a huntsman to take her out in the woods, have a hunting accident, and then, not so accidentally, remove Snow White's liver and lungs, so the queen can salt and eat them, because she is now apparently really committed to this villain thing. The huntsman, though, couldn't bring himself to kill Snow White, merely for being beautiful. Instead of killing her, he let her go completely without provisions, or preparation of any type, in a strange and dangerous forest. He then shot a deer, and took its lungs and liver back to the queen. In the dark forest, Snow White found a house, It looked nice and homey, so she went inside, and saw seven little dinners, ready next to seven little beds. Instead of eating just one or two of the dinners, she ate a little bit from each plate, and drank a little bit from each cup. Then, realizing that after narrowly missing execution and wandering in a dark forest, she was pretty sleepy. Oh, and here are seven beds, might as well try all of them, and she did. The dirty Snow White tried each and every bed, until coming to the last one, which was good enough. Then, of course, she went to sleep in this strange house. I have to say, if you find yourself in the dark forest, and chance upon a warm cottage filled with food and beds, you're not going to endear yourself to the owners, if you essentially lick all of the food, and rub your grimy traveling clothes on their sheets. Unless you're beautiful. The seven dwarves came back, and saw that all of their food had been partially eaten, and their beds messed up, but then they found Snow White, and hey, she's cute, so let's not bug her. The next day, Snow White told the seven dwarves her story, and they took pity on her, saying that if she merely cooks, cleans, sews, washes, knits for them, in addition to making them breakfast every morning, and dinner every night, then she would be allowed to stay with them, for as long as she wanted. Snow White, seeing as she had nowhere else to go, agreed. They only told her not to let anyone in the house, because, you know, they lived in the middle of the dark forest. With that, they went to work, to mine gold. Later that day, a completely normal and cool old lady stopped by the cottage, and she was just giving away a gold-trimmed bodice. When the dwarf said, don't let anyone in, surely they didn't mean harmless old ladies, completely unsuspiciously giving away expensive ladies' wear. Snow White opened the door, put on the bodice, and it laced itself up to be way too tight. Of course, the old lady was Snow White's mother, disguised with heretofore unmentioned magical powers, and she was still trying to murder her daughter. Apparently, the magic mirror is not only an objective judge of beauty, something that's, by definition, subjective, but it also comes preloaded with a Find My Friends app, and told the queen exactly where Snow White was hiding, slash employed, slash mildly enslaved. Making the classic villain move, the queen left Snow White gasping for air on the floor, her dress suffocating her. She went back to her palace, and the dwarves came in, just as Snow White lost consciousness. They cut her out of the bodice, and told her, really do not let strangers from the dark forest into our home. Also, why isn't dinner ready? The next day, a completely normal and cool old lady stopped by the cottage. She was just giving away a really nice comb. When the dwarfs said don't let anyone in, when the dwarfs said don't let anyone in, surely they didn't mean harmless old ladies, completely unsuspiciously giving away expensive hair care products. That night, the dwarfs plucked the poison comb from her hair and she regained consciousness. They were glad she was alive and probably mildly annoyed about dinner. The next day, a completely normal and cool old lady stopped by the cottage. She was just giving away a delicious looking apple. Snow White, still recovering from a poison comb and nearly having her ribs crushed by a magic vest, remembered the dwarf's warning, she wouldn't let this old woman in. But she would accept this delicious apple through the window. Wait, Snow White said to the old lady, How do I know you're not the same old lady who tried to kill me the past two days by giving me free stuff? The old lady took a bite of the unpoisoned half of the apple, and Snow White said, All right, that's good enough for me, and took the half-eaten produce. After one bite, she collapsed on the floor. Convinced that it worked this time, the queen fled back to her castle and consulted the magic mirror, which, after a firmware upgrade and relinking her Apple ID, she got confirmation that Snow White was officially dead. The dwarves learned the same thing. They couldn't find a comb and she wasn't wearing a vest. And since those are the only two things that can be wrong with a person, they accepted that Snow White was dead. There's an old proverb that says, a courtyard that is owned by many is swept by none, referring to a diffusion of responsibility in groups. Apparently, it also applies to the disposing of corpses because they just let Snow White's dead body hang around for a couple days. No one really wanting to take the lead with burying it. That's when one dwarf noticed that, hey, she's not rotting. They smelled her, and yeah, it looked like she was just sleeping. Minus the breathing part. Not wanting to bury someone that didn't really seem to be dead, they put some of that gold they had been mining to use, and had a glass casket made for her, so that they could see her if she woke. But they wouldn't have to dust her or clean her or anything. They moved some of the beds aside, and rested the glass coffin in the cottage. Years passed, and Snow White did not wake, but she did age from seven years old. One day, a prince came to the door, looking for shelter for the night, and they let him in. He was struck by Snow White's beauty and fell in love with her instantly. He turned to the dwarves and asked them how much they would charge for the sleeping girl. The dwarves said, yeah, we're not super comfortable with selling you a person. How about you just take her? We only knew her for like three days, and her body's taking up valuable foosball table space. Interesting. The prince had Snow White placed in a room, and for the first few days, he just sat and stared at the sleeping young woman. When the time came for him to leave the room and do princely stuff, he became so sad that he was unable to eat. Then, he had an idea. Four very unlucky servants were tasked with carrying the prince's corpse girlfriend everywhere. If he had an important meeting, she was there. Dinner time with mom and dad, she was there. Long, long walks through the countryside, she was there. The servants began to hate Snow White, and there was one time, when the prince had to run ahead, to see an arriving dignitary, and the servants had to catch up. When he was out of sight, they opened the glass casket for the first time in years. They were so angry at this dead girl for their sore arms and twisted backs, that they propped Snow White up in the casket, and backhanded the girl across the face. As it turned out, the queen's poison was too effective, and Snow White didn't even have a chance to swallow the apple piece, as soon as it hit her throat, the poison took effect. When the servant smacked her, the apple piece dislodged and flew from Snow White's mouth. Snow White woke up and was surprised to not only feel that her face was stinging, but that she wasn't in the dwarves' cottage. She was taken to the prince, who explained that he was the one who had bought her from the dwarves and he had been watching her sleep for weeks. Hey, let's get married. She agreed, and they set the wedding for the next day. So the invitations were a bit late going out. There was only one person Snow White wanted at her wedding, though. Only one person to thank for all of this, her mother. The mother, the queen for her part, consulted the mirror that morning for her daily self-esteem boost, but was horrified to learn that the new queen in a far-off land was more beautiful than she. The mother decided to go to the reception. She walked in the door and looked with shock on Snow White. It was true, her daughter was alive, and Snow White was more beautiful than her. And now, Snow White was a queen too. That's when the queen, the mother, felt the spear points nudge into her back. She turned and she was surrounded by her daughter's new guard. Snow White said that she was here because of her mother. She just wanted her mother to enjoy the reception and dance. And oh, look, Snow White had made some shoes for her mother. One of the servants brought out two pairs of iron shoes. Iron shoes that were bright orange from being in the fire all morning. Snow White told her mother to put the shoes on. I can picture the mother turning deathly pale at the request. And we don't know if she slipped her foot into the burning shoes, or if she was helped by the guard. But she did put the shoes on. She screamed and wept, and the skin on her feet sizzled and bubbled and burnt. Then Snow White commanded her to dance. Spear points once again being a real encouragement The queen started dancing, each step filled with quite literally searing pain, as the iron fused with her feet. In the end, I don't know if it was hours or days, but Snow White made her treacherous mother dance until she died. The end. So, that's the original story of Snow White. I should say that the 1857 revision doesn't have the servants becoming angry, and smacking Snow White. Instead, when the prince takes her to leave the dwarves, he jostles her just right to dislodge the apple. I guess that saves him from having to explain weeks of watching her sleep. In addition, in the 1857 version, the evil stepmother, remember, Snow White's mom had died in that version, well, the evil stepmother had just led her astray in the forest, instead of the vastly more reasonable and sane plan of ordering a huntsman to murder the girl, so that the queen could eat her liver and lungs. I can see why the 1857 version is the vastly more popular one for adaptations. The last story today is Bluebeard, and I'm actually not gonna spend too long on it. It's a fairly well-known one, and it's fairly predictable. It's another one where the most famous version was collected by Charles Perrault, the French author that I mentioned earlier in the episode. But there are different versions of the story from all over the world. There was once a man who had many horses, coaches, silver, gold, and of course, embroidered furniture. He was so unlucky though, because he had a long, blue beard, which made him so frightfully ugly, that women ran away from him. If only he lived in a world where hair was an easy thing to cut, and an otherwise attractive man of means could have the oddly blue hair removed from his face daily. If only. There were two beautiful sisters in town, and Bluebeard went to their father. Bluebeard told the man that he was newly single. His most recent wife had left unexpectedly. Yeah, because of the Bluebeard. Bluebeard, the romantic that he was, said that he really didn't care which sister he married, and he left it up to them to decide. Both insisted that the other marry Bluebeard. To settle it, Bluebeard took the sisters, their family, and others from the village to a party in his country house, and it was awesome. The younger sister decided to marry him. She married Bluebeard and went to live with him in his house. A month later, Bluebeard had to take a six-week journey through the country and left his wife all the keys to the castle. He detailed everyone, saying she could go in any room except the little closet at the end of the hall. If she went in there, she could expect his anger and resentment. She had some friends over and it was fun, but she burned with curiosity. She went through every room in the house, except the closet downstairs. Finally, she just had to know what was behind the door. The hallway was dim and it was dark inside the room, so she couldn't quite see things at first until her eyes adjusted. Then she saw all of the things. The floor was covered in old, clotted blood, and in the room were the dismembered bodies of every one of Bluebeard's previous wives. The woman screamed and dropped the key, and it splashed in the blood. She snatched it up, ran from the room, and locked the door behind her. Of course, as she was running away in a panic, a servant found her. He had news, her husband had come home early. He would be here in an hour. She saw the key covered in blood, and tried to wash it, but she couldn't. She used soap and sand and everything, but the key was enchanted to reveal blood. She greeted Bluebeard with only slightly veiled terror and pretended like everything was okay. The next morning, when he demanded the keys, it came out. He saw the blood on the key. He looked her in the eye and said that it was obvious that she had gone in the closet. He said, well, all right, you'll be going back there to take your spot on the wall with all my other wives. He drew a sword, grabbed her by the hair, and put it to her neck she pleaded with him for a little more time to say her prayers before she died. Bluebeard relented and said that she could have half of a quarter of an hour, which is an oddly specific amount of time. She thanked him, wiped her tears, and went to her room. I'm going to get out ahead of the story and say that it has a very unsatisfying ending. The woman's brothers were supposed to come visit her that day, apparently exactly seven and a half minutes from then. Bluebeard came for her, and when he was about to bring the sword down on her neck, the brothers burst in the room. They chased Bluebeard down and killed him, and the woman inherited the estate. She remarried, and eventually forgot the time with Bluebeard. I'm always wary of reading into these stories, but because this is a Peralt story, it too has a clearly marked moral at the end. Two morals, actually. Given his fairly progressive warning about sexual predators in the last story, you might think that this one is a warning about being betrothed to an older man you know nothing about of similar to Beauty and the Beast, how someone can seem nice, but really be a monster, so watch out. You would be wrong. The moral, of course, is, women don't be curious about what your husband is up to. If he says don't go in a room, don't go in the room. The enjoyment of curiosity, once satisfied, ceases to exist, and it always costs you dearly. Yeah, it doesn't matter that this room contains very relevant information, seeing as they are murdered ex-wives and you are his current wife, but no, Don't go poking around your husband's things, because you might not like what you find, especially if you find a room full of corpses. The second moral? This story took place a long time ago, so no husband now, in the 17th century, would be so mean as to give his wife a key and then tell her not to open the door. That is cruel. And that's it. I'm honestly having a difficult time reconciling Peralt's apparent sympathy for Bluebeard, I've looked around the internet for various interpretations, as well as academic resources, and I can't seem to work this one out. If you have some thoughts on this, let me know, and I'll include it in a future episode. Next week, we're going back into Russian folklore, for the story of the fool of the world, and the flying ship. It involves, unsurprisingly, a fool and a flying ship, but also, superpowers, and way too much vodka. I want to say thanks to LS333333, Morgan5673, Bill Carson, Mean Cousin, Pat the Tester, Cocoa Rocks Forever, Banana64532, Ray Mola, Dave Jackson, T Kingsbury, Kristen Alana, A.K. Zimmer, Kate Wicket, Dutch of Class, Happy Wiggly One, and Muffins Mmm for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much for leaving reviews and the fun names. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, and you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the website. For less than the price of a shower curtain with Jeff Goldblum and what looks like a gorilla, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that probably will not make your guests feel like Jeff Goldblum is watching them go to the bathroom. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. Creatures this week are the Scents of Bonsam and the shamantan from Ashanti folklore in West Africa. They are a husband and wife team. They are forest creatures, and they hang out in trees, and that's not just a phrase. They hang from trees, waiting for you. They are incredibly tall, and their feet go all the way to the ground, and the feet look like roots. If you pass nearby, they will wrap their legs around you and pull you up into the leaves. What happens next depends on who gets you. If the husband... The Sansa Bonsam gets you. That's really it for you. He will relieve you of all your blood and then eat the rest of you. He'll eat you with his feet too, which is somehow weirder than just eating you. That's actually a key to avoiding them. And this is going to seem super obvious, but they wipe their bloody feet on the ground near the tree. So if you see a tree with a bunch of blood underneath it, maybe don't walk under that tree. I mean, you've already broken the first rule of the Myths and Legends podcast by going into the Dark Forest, so I kind of doubt you're going to start listening to me now. If the wife, the shamatin, gets you, you're in luck, kind of. She won't kill you, but she will school you. Really, she will sit you down for a class. You'll be her captive. And for months and months, she will relentlessly teach you folklore. Then she'll release you. I know some teachers use this podcast for their class, and I'm not sure if the shamatin does, but if you're hearing this and you're a captive of the shamatin, hang in there, pun intended. Hopefully it's just a few more months. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. Links to still more music are in the show notes. Thanks again to Bombas Socks for sponsoring us today. Bombas are the most comfortable, best-fitting socks I've ever worn. They donate one pair of socks to those in need for every pair purchased. And right now, you can get 20% off plus free shipping on your first order for more pairs. You can do that by going to Bombas.com. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com. Bombas has a 100% satisfaction guarantee. You'll love them or your money back. No questions asked. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.